Hello. I'm here today with a, a lovely lady called Jordan Wright that I've known for quite a few years um, through her work as a designer and curator for the Do Lectures and Hyatt Denim. And Jordan is now starting a new chapter in her life and she's kindly agreed to have a chat today. So hello, Jordan. And how do you feel today? Hey, Gareth. Um, how do I feel? You know what? Pretty energised considering it's the start of the year. Um, and yeah, optimistic. I think, as you just said, starting a new chapter has been really, really positive for me. Um, stepping into what feels right. Um, so yeah, as you as you just mentioned, been working with the Do Lectures and Hyatt Denim for quite a few years and I made the decision to focus a bit more on the climate advocacy industry and working with organizations, NGOs, companies that support that and everything kind of that comes with it. And have you got anybody in particular in mind or are you going to start sort of um, reaching out? Yeah, so I've been, um, so I used to be one of the regional reps for West Wales with Surfers Against Sewage and oh gosh, did that for probably around seven years. Um, that was kind of a mix of different things, uh, organising beach cleans, attending training sessions, giving talks, all on a voluntary basis. Um, and that was, yeah, really rewarding. Um met some incredible people hugo tag home as you as you would have met at the do lectures and definitely fueled my passion for that sector and industry um and then probably around 18 months ago i met a guy called dan yates who is part of protect our winters met him at a conference in bristol and made the decision to kind of move away from the sea with Surface Against Sewage and actually head to the mountains. Because, um, yeah, I'm really passionate about the mountains, snow sports, that sort of that sort of area. So I had a really great chat with Dan and asked if I could help in any sort of way. Tried not to spin too many plates, so decided to step down as a regional rep for Surface Against Sewage. And then, um, yeah, kind of supported as a vol volunteer initially with Protect Our Winters and um, have been, yeah, working alongside the team, probably, yeah, probably around the last 18 months. And what what sort of work do Protect Our Winters do? They're not somebody I'm familiar with. No, so they, um, they're they an NGO. They started in 2007, founded by a pro snowboarder, Jeremy Jones, over in the States, and then... Um, so yeah, their, their main focus is climate advocacy, um, law reform for environmental issues. And the kind of three pillars that they work towards is, so educate, raising awareness about climate change, um, advocate driving policy change and collaborate. So collaborating with partners, whether or not that's outdoor industry, um, professional athletes are using the power of the athlete voice, um, NGOs, scientists, all for kind of systemic change towards climate 
And what I know you've just sort of finished your um, master's as well. Has that informed any of this? Yes, yes, it has. I think um, so. It was interesting because my master's was um, um, in international innovation design management, and innovation being kind of the key word there because that immediately sparks like new product development and creating new solutions. So a lot of the papers that I wrote, including my thesis, I really wanted to kind of challenge challenge what that meant. So um, for example, my thesis, I looked at identifying if profit and the planet can coexist. So focusing on accreditations and um, just kind of challenging their worthiness within the outdoor industry. And the conclusion I sort of came to was, was one of them was consumerism and actually how as humans we consume we, we we do consume in multiple ways and we can't avoid that so that's why it was quite interesting with the topic with the kind of overarching masters of innovation and bringing that in to something like consumerism it's like how can we do that for better mm. And we've and just had a chat about that, haven't we? And I've got a, oh, I don't know, fag packet view of it that <laughs> I sort of feel we can't. <laughs> I think of what Peer was saying recently when I had a chat with him and he was talking about needs as opposed to wants. Yes. Yes. And obviously there's needs which need to be satisfied and we can do those better. But then I think how many wants we try to satisfy and how how that outweighs the needs more often than not. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's... Um, again, coming back to kind of working as a visual graphic designer for so many years, yeah, that's, that's all I've done is kind of try to sell something, whether or not that's a product or a service, um, through copywriting, graphic graphical design, um, any sort of visual to make something sexy to sell, which doesn't necessarily, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I think we need to be more mindful of how we're using those. So again, besides consumerism, my other sort of conclusion was communication. So the consumer versus the citizen, because ultimately through marketing and selling, we're pushing the consumer to buy more. Um, Yeah, which, yeah, it's tricky. Like you said, it's coming back to the conversations we've had previously. Um. I have I have zero answers, by the way, so I feel quite <laughs> hypocritical even having the opinions I've got because I don't know. I guess we've all got to make our own minds up. Mm. Um, but then it's a minefield because where do you go for the correct sort of overview and information? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's where, where Pez kind of got it spot on because he just is encouraging people to live a simple life. Like, you don't need yeah. too many things. You just need the essentials. Um even though marketing and advertising tell you otherwise. Yeah. There's always this rainbow, isn't there, at the end of it? Mm, absolutely. <laughs> and I think, yeah, and then the kind of coming full circle back to what you said is, so moving within the climate sector, using the skills I have and um, the experience and knowledge I've gained over the years with design and and actually packaging that up and using that to not sell another product, but actually sell 
ways that we can save the planet, essentially. That sounds cool. <laughs> um, I know, you know, I, you, we're both lucky to live in a place where, if we wanted, you can have sea and uh, mountains. Well, let's call them hills. But <laughs> <laughs> um, and I know you love the outdoors and you're out loads, but what this time of year, what do you get up to this time of year? Oh, um, well, at the moment, the swell has been pretty epic down here in South Wales. So, um, yeah, we've been out in the sea a lot, um, which has been great. Winter surfs are pretty magical. Um, definitely not longboarding waves, but um, yeah, there's been some some crazy, crazy weather this end, which has resulted into some pretty epic sea time. So yeah, because my little boy, so we've really got into mountain biking in the last couple of years and he absolutely loves it. But yeah, again, it's just tricky because Wales is so wet. So you need to time that right. So yeah, um, winter is definitely in Wales. I said mainly is great for getting in the sea. I didn't realise that you were such a surfer either until today. I knew you'd love yeah. to see that, but I didn't realise. So is that from when you were a kid or when did you start? Oh, so, well, I, I was born in Oxford, grew up in, yeah, grew up in a city, um, pretty far from the coast. And yeah. then it was, it was my aunt and uncle, they moved to Pembrokeshire. And then my sister and I would visit every summer. And it was when my uncle was working for an outdoor, an outdoor adventure company, TYF. And yeah, Paige and I would come down and gosh, how old were we? I think we were like maybe five and eight and they would just chuck us on the activities or yeah. like just let us hang out with the guides. And it was great. And every every summer we'd go back home and back to Oxford and be like, we really want to move to West Wales. Please, please can we move to Pembrokeshire? And yeah, and I've, I've also got like two other, so there's four of us. I'm one of four and my parents... Yeah, decided when I was 14 that we would all move move west. I didn't even know I didn't even know Wales was a different country. I didn't know it was attached to England like yeah. that. <laughs> and it, yeah, we just got up and everyone moved. It doesn't I know people make bigger moves than that, but um no, yeah, because I, you were you I were really... in um comprehensive at the time. So that's, you know, that's a tricky time anyway and to yeah, do that in... through the middle of it. Oh my gosh, absolutely. I think I do think actually, I think if my parents had left it another year, I think it would have been really hard, but I think they just by coincidence caught it perfectly. And yeah. um yeah, the, the people I made friends with in Wales, they were just so lovely. I think just Welsh people are just really friendly <laughs> generally. I do I do believe that. Everyone is just so warm and welcoming and don't know, maybe we're just in a bubble in Pembrokeshire. But um yeah. Well, Fantastic, isn't it? I mean, yeah. Where, where did you move to then? Which town? In Pembrokeshire. Or village, yeah, yeah. Um, we moved to a little village just outside of Haverford West, so between Haverford West and Fishguard. Um, so yeah, again, in the middle of nowhere. So it was, it was like complete, complete polar opposite of what I was used to, like living pretty much in Oxford centre where you could walk everywhere, get buses everywhere. And then here, public transport is pretty much non-existent. You've got to drive like four hours to an, to a, a relatively decent airport to get out of the country. So yeah, you do, it, 
you do feel kind of a bit <laughs> disconnected down here, but in the best possible way. I agree with you. That's part of the reason I'm, I moved here nearly 20 years ago from um, the sort of valleys, which is the east, southeast mm. of Wales. And that sort of slight disconnection was what I wanted. Mm. And I thought it'd be a brilliant way for the children to grow up, you know, the kids and to have freedom and, yeah, I feel very lucky to have been able to do it. I think, yeah, I think my parents were pretty much of the same, the same mindset. And yeah, I guess me going into teenage years, it was the schools kind of had a bit of a change up. So when I was there, we had a middle school and then they decided to scrap middle school and then just have, I guess, primary and secondary, um, which is what they have in Wales as well. So I don't think there's many middle schools around anymore, but um, it did mean then you would have these huge schools um, and then obviously huge schools results in more behaviour, um, not always in a positive way. So, yeah, and I, I think it's pretty common now, but at the age of 14, having to go through like metal detectors to get into school and having your finger, doing your fingerprint as you go in, was quite bizarre. And that's yeah. Oxford, I presume, before you came down. Yeah, yeah, that was um, that was when we were living in Oxford, and yeah, who knows what it's like now? Because yeah, knife crime was quite rapidly increasing when I was there. Yeah, so many students bringing knives into schools. Um, yeah, a lot of incidents happening. So yeah, very grateful for the move that my parents made. And my grandparents came with us as well. My aunt and uncle were already down here. So, um, yeah, very, very fortunate. And then, yeah, that's where kind of the love of being outdoors and in the sea stemmed from. Um, because even in Oxford, my mum was always really, really outdoorsy. She would take us on all sorts of hikes when she could. And um, so, yeah, we kind of slotted into life here quite quite easily yeah did you say you've got three brothers and sisters three sisters three sisters yeah and did they all have the similar experience you know were they glad to come down did well I'm, I'm yeah i'm the eldest so um yeah Paige is three years younger than me so i think yeah i think she was actually fine and then the twins they're eight years younger than me again so um yeah i don't i don't think they really remember much of oxford to be honest and you led the way <laughs> I led some sort of way. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's yeah. brilliant. I, I'm. It's so nice to hear that. Yeah, and I think yeah, and I, I'm always like so grateful for my aunt and uncle as well because the adventures they go on and the the activities they've introduced us to have definitely shaped who we are today. Yeah, I can't remember if I, I mentioned it to you. They went on a pretty epic sailing trip around the world during COVID actually. So they sold their house in Pembrokeshire, which they'd been living in, in for over 10 years. I think it was probably close to maybe maybe 15 years or something. But yeah, they decided to sell all their possessions and sell their house, buy a boat. Not really a great deal of sailing experience before, but they kind of had this itch that they needed to, yeah. I, I think I read about it in um, one of the Finisterre, Either they newsletters or on their website, I can't remember. But um, yeah, they did a couple really of like, But they didn't have much sailing experience. No, no, they didn't. And they, um, yeah, I've always admired, admired that about them. That, yeah, gosh, life's too short. 
And are they back? Are they back at Pembrokeshire? Yeah, they came back last Christmas, actually. Um, and it's been really, really great to have them back. Um, so, yeah, I've been getting out in the sea, in the sea with both Lou and Tom. And, and it's really nice for Arlo, my little boy, to kind of spend that time with them again, because during COVID, they, they did move in with us for a little bit because obviously they sold the house. So then they had this weird lull because there was all sorts of regulations about them actually leaving the country and being able to have all sorts of testing in various other countries. So yeah, it was it was a bit of a palaver. So they moved in with us for a little bit during COVID and then, yeah, set sail. Do you feel, did, I mean, it was weird, wasn't it, COVID? And it's when I started going in the sea all the time, but it still surprises me how recent that was. Do you feel like that or do you feel like it's sort of long time ago um to be honest the last five years i don't even know where they've gone it's um it's been at super speed i think yeah my gosh having a child that makes time speed up enormously is Um, arlo five then he's five yeah right and then obviously yeah we had covid and um i've completed a master's uh yeah it's it's all been a bit bonkers but um I think, yeah, it, in some ways it feels quite recent. But for me, I think COVID was such a positive a positive time. We, yeah, just kind of having that time with Arlo was really, really special because um, he was only tiny. And even so with the do lectures, we worked continuously throughout COVID. And I think, well, we, we firstly, we achieved some of the best work I think we that since I've been there like we introduced our online courses and we we just were so agile in how we worked really tight team but also on the other side of it I think it really helped us well helped me mentally I think um keeping busy and having some sort of purpose I think was really positive and yeah, I can't speak on behalf of the team, but I think the energy we had going through was really, really great. I think using that time in that sort of way. Yeah, and feeling, I assume, as if you're part of a team or a gang, whereas, you know, a lot of other people were just sort of on their own. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, and the, and the weather was great, so it just meant that we could, yeah, go for walks, go for cycles and... Again, like super fortunate to be able to live in this corner of the UK. Yeah, oh, I feel the same. And what what's what, what makes me feel like it surprises me about it how recent it is is because it feels so far away. Mm. Because the world came back so quickly that um, we almost I'd kind of hoped that some of the stuff would have uh, stayed similar to how not how it was, but just that. You know, just some of the slowing down might have persisted, but it didn't. If anything, it seems faster, actually. Yeah, I think people might be making up for lost time, potentially. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what's on the horizon then, the next sort of, I don't mean work-wise, I just mean life-wise. Just life-wise. sort of come out a few months mm. as spring comes. What are you looking forward to? Yeah, what are we looking forward to? Um, well, we're gonna we're heading out to Italy at the end of the month, which would be good. Get on the mountains, do some snowboarding. Um, yeah, working with Protect Our Winters a little bit as well. So um, supporting them with some pretty big campaigns that are going on. We've got the kind of EU elections that are happening this year. So 
working with um, Protect Our Winters in Europe and the kind of 10 countries slash chapters that falling within there, yeah, campaigning towards that at the moment. Um, I am assuming their ultimate aim is to change legislation on a sort of government level, is it? Is that what they aim for? Yeah, exactly. So um, I'm not sure the ins and outs at the moment. We've got kind of um, a few leads within that campaign. Um, but yeah, ultimately kind of bringing it back to the kind of educate, advocate, collaborate. So using the power of the voice and being able to yeah, to change policy for good. And do you have many, you mentioned athletes earlier, and obviously athletes are a fab way of uh, getting an influence and getting messages out there. But is, is there anybody, I'm assuming they've got a whole whole bunch of supporters who are, have a an audience already yeah 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 so um with and i think that's kind of the power within within europe is we have these kind of 10 countries and within those 10, 10 countries they the, when i say 10 countries 10 countries that have signed up to be part of protect our winters um they have their own athletes um and as i said it started in the us so then the us have got their own athletes We've got Protect Our Winters in Canada, in Japan, New Zealand. So, yeah, it's definitely power in numbers. Um, and then kind of with Protect Our Winters, we don't claim to be kind of the scientists or the experts in any particular area, more of the kind of activists and campaigners, the coordinators in some way in making that happen and connecting the dots um, so whether so whether that is with an athlete, an athlete or brands, so working with not only purpose-led or innovative brands, but also kind of the big snow sports brands that want to do good, which is interesting because then coming back to kind of my thesis with the accreditations, yeah, you could you could spend money and buy into becoming one um, percent for planet or B Corp. But actually taking action and putting kind of one step in front of the other, very cliche to say, but will have more of an impact than just kind of having a logo in your email footer, essentially. I'm not saying that nobody should become any of these, because I do think also with accreditations, they give you that focus and the tools that you need to be able to do the right things. Cause I think some companies do need that guidance, especially bigger organizations. They're not sure where to go next. Um, or maybe they do know, but they're kind of stuck in a bit of a rut. Then I think then accreditations are really beneficial, but also I think we're kind of, we're running out of time, aren't we? Like the planet is in a terrible, terrible situation and just moving forward and not waiting is the best possible thing right now. Yep. I agree. But as I said, I know very little about it. It just feels correct, what you've just said. Yeah. You've always struck me as a very upbeat person, uh, Jordan, <laughs> right? Which I admire in people. Is that just natural or do you do things to stay that way? Um, I do think it is quite natural, actually. Um, yeah, I do try and see the positives in every situation. I think I try and there's the, there's things that you can't control, but you can control what you do. And I think that in itself is quite powerful. I think quite a lot of people I know, they get hung up on 
feeling out of control of a situation then that they're never going to be able to control but actually looking after yourself and your well-being and the steps that you can take can support in having a more positive attitude i agree it's a fundamental but it's depending on how you're built i think you you've kind of got to learn it and practice it for it to become normal whereas i see some people and that's just the way they are mm. and you seem to be able to be that way naturally yeah yeah i think um i'm not sure if we've had the conversation before but i had quite quite a risky operation back in 2007 and um it was yeah sort of like life or death i had um essentially a tumor that was on the left hand side of my face um which i'd had since i was born and it hadn't really caused any sort of disruption to my life um, to the point where actually the doctors and surgeons said, um, if you want it removed, it's going to be for cosmetic reasons, um, not actually medical reasons. And um, so this is when I was living in Oxford and I'd always have these kind of regular, regular checkups and scans and just so they could keep an eye on it growing but it did it grew with me um and then it wasn't until we actually moved to wales it's so funny because the way things sort of all panned out it was it was all very i, I don't even know how to describe it i guess everything sort of happened for a reason in my life at that point so yeah when we moved to wales um went to a gp took my flipping in, enormous folder of medical notes with me and um it's really funny actually my gp is that was my so my partner george it was his his dad and he i didn't know george at this point just <laughs> for the record and um immediately he was like you need to go to cardiff you need to go to the heath um you need to take this seriously and sort of like rushed me rushed me forward to kind of see some of the best specialist really within ENT, so ear, nose and throat department. And so this is when I was 14. And then I had the operation when I was 17. So it happened in NHS timeframes. That was pretty fast. And um, yeah, went in for the operation again, under the assumption that it was for cosmetic reasons. And they found out that it was actually suffocating the oxygen to go into my brain. And they were, wow. yeah, they, they were pretty sure that I wouldn't have made it to my next birthday. And um, actually trying to remove that was a very complex surgery. It was, they, they described it as like a tea bag covering my face. And he said, the surgeon that was operating on me said that when he was kind of cutting it away, um, it was going further and further at the back of my, back of my head. And, um, yeah, I just lost so much blood. So they had to stop the operation, try and yeah, get, get me get me stable and yeah I, it took a long time to recover um i remember waking up and just like bandages around my face looking like frankenstein stapled so i've got a scar going from like um well from the bottom of my neck all the way up past my ear my left ear and then probably halfway like in line with my eyebrow i'd say so yeah wow. they essentially peeled my face over and cut away this abnormal mass of cells. But I think, yeah, I think it's quite similar to like a tumour is what, 
from from doing a bit of research i think that's probably the closest closest thing to describe it as but yeah i think that was the scariest thing is if i hadn't have had it then who knows what would have happened but yeah they were pretty sure yeah if i hadn't been there there and then i did i knew part of that but i didn't know that whole story john that's um yeah, incredible. And did you so basically move into Wales if that hadn't have happened? Exactly. It almost saved your life. Yeah. Yeah. Moving to Wales <clears throat> and yeah, the GP rushing me through to the heath. Yeah. It all kind of fell quite perfectly into place, I guess. Um how, how did you I mean that's still quite young, isn't it? How mm. um how did you process that and feel about it afterwards? Um yeah, tough. Because I guess, yeah, at the age of 17, you're very self-aware of who well, who you are. Who You're not really sure who you are at that point. Who you are and um, how you look. Luckily, I'd been in Wales for a few years, so kind of made a good group of friends. But um, still, it's, it's like kind of being accepted, isn't it? And, and if you look different, especially on your face, it's so, such a visible, visible area. And yeah, even now very aware of the way I look um even though it's not as obvious as it used to be so before the operation it just kind of looked like I had an abscess all the time it was just like really large um whereas now yeah it's definitely slimmed down but it has resulted in obviously a lot of nerve damage so I can't raise my left eyebrow um I can't really smile fully on my left hand side um my left eyelid doesn't clothes and also my bottom left eyelid started to droop so a couple of years ago I did have an operation to kind of um have a little stitch in the corner of my eye my left eye and then had a metal plate put in as which acted as a weight yeah which does work but it is tricky like when it's sunny I have to like immediately put sunglasses on because it's really hard to squint um well it's impossible to squint because I have no muscles in that eye um and going in the sea can be really tricky, especially at the moment where, my gosh, the sand is just being churned up. Because, yeah, no matter how tight I try and close my eye, that left eye is not going to close. So it just gets well, filled. And do you feel, I don't know how to put it, um, having a close shave like that, did that put a different perspective on life as you've grown older? Yeah, I think it did. It's hard to know because, like, when you said, have, have I always kind of been positive? Um to me, it feels very natural, but then I guess I had the operation when I was still quite young, so I can't really remember. I was very shy as a as a child growing up, like quite painfully shy compared to my sisters, and even compared to um, my five year old. He like he's got ridiculous amount of confidence. So yeah, I think post op and kind of accepting and after recovery and accepting the way I looked and coming to terms with what had happened, I do think that did shift my mindset. And yeah, like I said before, life's too short. I think you just don't know what's going to happen because there, well, I don't know, the surgeon's confident he removed 90%, but it, it could grow back. It That 90% remaining could be in a place where it shouldn't be. Um, so yeah, I think... Yeah, thinking quite optimistically and positively definitely helps me get through. Oh, thanks for being so open about that, Jordan. I, I only knew part of it. 
and it's um it's very inspiring actually to talk about it like that oh, thank you yeah. um on that note <laughs> i i always ask as we come at the end of a chat you know is there anything you can leave us with that um you think would be helpful to other people some sort of something that that helps you um i do believe that positive energy is contagious and we should chase it um you've brightened me up today and that's the truth <laughs> yeah just surrounding surrounding yourself whether or not that's people or things or gosh activities whatever it is whatever brings that positive energy just yeah head towards it we spoke about it before like wanting to help people but i think unless you're in the right headspace then it becomes then unhelpful i think and i think it's accepting that i think it's accepting that okay this isn't the right time for me to be that support for that person or to do that thing but it doesn't mean that everything's going to fall apart i think it's being really self-aware of where you are you are first yeah definitely that thing about becoming self-aware is so um not underrated but it's not everything's sold about becoming happy isn't it as yeah. opposed to in the first place becoming self-aware mm -hmm. and i think self-aware is top of the stream kind of thing yeah definitely and then when you understand yourself better you can sort of be much better help to other people mm. uh, at the right times than, yeah easier said than done though isn't it it's um very much so very very much easier said than done yeah but i think sometimes you that's why it was so interesting hearing you talk because sometimes i think you need to have some sort of crunch point to realize that to then react to that to almost become essential to do that and to understand yourself better absolutely and i don't think it matters how big or small like i think yeah sometimes people feel that it needs to be this massive life-changing thing that can shift a perspective but it it doesn't i think everybody's every yeah everyone's big or small is so different to the next so um yeah. that's very self-aware jordan <laughs> thank you Gary. i mean it no i mean it because i i said crunch point but you're right is it's the scale of it is different for each person exactly you don't know yeah you don't know what people are going through you don't know what might trigger the next um brilliant well thanks for the chat it's been lovely and really nice to see you. Thank you, Gareth. Cheers. I'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.